Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle. Yet the look should be timeless, and you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space. Or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability They'll have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Water, it's no longer just a commodity, it's now a celebrity beverage. Today we chat with journalist Dave Stroop about the Berkeley Springs International Water Tasting Competition, also about the troubling future of this precious resource. From, you know, the research that I've seen, there's concern that, that there will be a lot of people who simply will not have access to water. How by 20, 2100 or something, there might be nations fighting wars over water. Also coming up, we share a recipe for a coconut milk rice pudding. And Dan Pashman asks one of the most pressing questions of our time, should the pizza emoji have pepperoni on it? But first, it's my interview with filmmaker David Gelb. He's the director of the 2011 hit documentary, Jiro Dreams of Sushi. 
also the creator of the Netflix docuseries, Chef's Table. His latest Netflix series, Street Food, explores the rich street food culture of nine Asian cities. David, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you for having me. Uh, You've had the career that I've always wanted. You did some sci-fi, The Lazarus Effect, uh, Jiro Dreams of Sushi, probably my absolute favorite food documentary of all time. Now you're doing uh, street food, um, done chef's table, lots of things. Uh, Jiro's Dreams of Sushi. Can I ask you a question about that? That has, of course, how they massage the octopus for 45 minutes and this incredible amount of attention to detail. Was that a story about his relationships with his sons and, and the people around him? Or is that a story about food? Well, I think that the journey of making it was was a quite a revelation to myself and the other people I was working with because in our initial research and development, you know, we thought we were going to make a movie about about sushi and about the art of sushi and the different styles of making sushi. But what we found was that a much more compelling story is about uh, a family and about people. And then the conflict of the film really comes from the sacrifice and the cost that it takes to devote yourself to that level. Right. I mean, there's a moment in the film in, in Jiro Dreams of Sushi when we're interviewing Jiro's sons, and they say that it was like there was a stranger living in the house that would leave very early in the morning and come back very late at night, and they would never see that person. And that was their father. You know, I think uh, that there is a certain kind of, um, there's a trade-off, you know, and, and, and that devotion requires sacrifice. And I think that's one of the things that makes it such an interesting film. You've traveled the world uh, for Chef's Table, interviewing lots of sh- different chefs in different countries. So you came across some some interesting moments doing yep. Chef's Table, right? I mean, there's so much, you know. Um, one of the most memorable experiences in shooting Chef's Table was... Uh, was filming our episode with the uh, South Korean Buddhist nun, Jung Kwan. Oh, yeah. Who is, yeah. you know, she's, she's a remarkable chef, but she doesn't even call herself a chef. You know, she's just a nun, and she cooks, and it's totally vegan, but it's totally delicious. And so, you know, when I went to, out to go shoot that episode, I thought that I was going to have a very healthy experience, kind of spiritual experience, just eating, you know, okay, I'm going to eat vegan for two weeks while we're shooting this thing. And... Um, we start shooting on the first day, and it's wonderful. And you know, we have this incredible lunch that Jung Kwan and her fellow nuns have prepared, and it's so satisfying and delicious and unique. And so, when they invite us to come back for dinner, I say, "Of course." But then the uh, leader of our uh, the South Korean uh, contingent of our crew pulls me aside, and he says, "You know, Koreans, we don't like temple food. We don't eat it." <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "Oh, okay." Great. Well, where would you like to eat? And so, of course, they take us to a, uh, a barbecue place, right. you know, and it's just, you know, it's Korean barbecue. And so the rules of the temple cuisine, you know, no meat, of course, and no animal products and no garlic, no onions of any kind, because these kind of flavors, they linger on the palate and they create a sensation of increased hunger, which can be distracting uh, to meditation. And then, of course, you're not supposed to drink. But here we are in South Korea shooting this episode and we're at a beef restaurant eating tons of beef with lots of garlic and drinking beers and stuff and uh, the next day we I come in to do the interview and she immediately could smell it all on us you know we could, even after showering it's like okay we smell the she's very heightened senses and so she has no judgment but she was just kind of laughing and being like oh you had the opposite of what you had for lunch <laughs> <laughs> and so I thought that was quite funny well street food it seems to me you're getting deeper into the part of cooking I love. One example is in Seoul, a woman named Cho who's preparing and selling knife-cut noodles in a marketplace. Her husband got into debt, and she had to go to work to pay for her kid's education. Is, is that a different... You see that as a very different kind of series than Chef's Table, or is it just a simple extension of it? Well, in street food, you know, we found that these street food vendors have, have very intense stories with oftentimes much higher stakes than the than the stories of our chefs and chef's table and you know a lot of the uh street food vendors are are cooking not because they want to or because they wanted to you know follow the glamorous life of of being a chef which is really a a a new concept in in street food they're often doing it just to survive or they're doing it because they want to continue the legacy of their ancestors you know if they've been if they're the fourth or fifth generation 
you know, cooking it. They, they, they take a certain pride in being able to continue that legacy. And the other kind of interesting thing about street food is that we really look at the city because street food is so closely integrated into the city that it is culturally. These vendors are, they're, they're part of the fabric of the culture. And, and every morning, people are going to work, they're stopping at their street food vendor, they're stopping at another one at lunch that's probably near their office, and they may be stopping at a third place on their way home. Um, and that's their everyday lives. And there's kind of a social component to that where people in the neighborhood are hanging out and getting a bite outside at their street food place. And so there's that there's that element to it. And then the history of these cities, the events that took place in these in the, in these cities, very and, and, and the climates and the um, ancestral farmers and things like that, these all have a huge effect on what they're cooking. And uh, we found that to be quite interesting as well. Let's step way back and look at the arc. There was fine dining, right? Uh, there were French restaurants in the 60s and 70s in New York. Then the American cuisine sort of took over, however you want to define that. Uh, we have celebrity chefs. Now we have a move, I think, as you pointed out, in street food to just focusing on the ingredients, something a bit simpler. Do, do you see this as all part of a, you know, a curve, a natural progression? And if so, to what end? To where, where are we headed with this? Well, I think the, the large curve, you know, the big change in cooking comes from, in France, Nouvelle Cuisine. You know, the, the, the traditional French cooking was so much about the technique and covering the food completely with sauce. And so the product was less important than the technique. Right. And I think that the big change in Nouvelle Cuisine in France was that focusing on a delicious product and then letting all of the technique, the sauce, whatever it is, it's all about elevating the inherent flavor within that product, be it a meat, a vegetable, fish, whatever. Um, and I think that that is the progression of cooking. Wolfgang Puck said something really interesting when I was talking to him recently, and he was saying that, you know, uh, my job, the job of the chef is to get the best ingredients and then to not f- them up. <laughs> that sounds like <laughs> so, Wolfgang to me. <laughs> yeah, and so I think that that is, that's the truth, is it's respect for the farmers, respect for the ingredients that you're getting, and then your cooking should be in service of that product and not to cover it up with your artifice. David Gell, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having you on Milk Street. All right. Thank you so much for having me. That was filmmaker David Gelb, the creator of Netflix's Chef's Table and also Street Food. It's time for my co-host Sarah Malt and I to answer your cooking questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101 and star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. Sarah, what's up? I'm good, Chris, but I have a very important question for you. What? What is the recipe that you most hate to make? That somebody says, oh, would you whip up a blip? And you're like, oh, I don't want to do that. That doesn't exist. I mean, you know, I'm not going to make puff pastry or croissant or anything like that anytime soon. But you mean something people would actually ask me to make? Well, I'm talking about genoise. We agree Uh, on that one. Oh, yeah. Yep. Well, the, the problem with Genoise is the American sponge cake is an easier, more foolproof, and better recipe. The Genoise was designed to annoy American pastry <laughs> well, chefs. Well, we absolutely agree on that one. So there we go. Okay. We agree. Genoise. Now I think we take a call. Down with the Genoise. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Yes, hello. This is Judy calling from Princeton, New Jersey. Hi, Judy. My question for you today, um, I've got limited storage space for stockpots, limited freezer space for, you know, holding large volumes of liquids. So I'm wondering about the wisdom of making a vegetable stock and using the full complement of, you know, herbs and vegetables, but only enough water to cover, which, you know, maybe half, two-thirds of the water, preparing it, freezing it, and then diluting it back up, doing the math to dilute it back up as I use it for soups and, you know, other uses in the kitchen. I think in general, you probably don't want to start with less water. But Sarah, you're a stock master. You know, there's, he says that because I'm, you know, French trained and I still believe in making stock. If you make just a stock the normal way and you keep the bones covered with liquid, even if you've cooked it for however long you're going to do it, three, four hours and you strain it, it's still going to be pretty weak. I almost always take my stock, strain my stock, and reduce it, boil it down, even just to use it for soup because I find it pretty watery. But if you simmer it gently and it's really no big deal, you don't have to stand over it, you can take it all the way down till it's bouncy like hard jello. 
I mean, that's even beyond a gloss. And it will stay in your refrigerator for weeks and weeks and weeks. You don't even need to freeze it. Because what makes things go bad is all that liquid. And once you get rid of most of that liquid, you're sort of down to the gelatin. It really keeps pretty well. But if you do want to freeze it, just reduce it down till it coats the back of a spoon. You know, it's pretty thick. And then you can put it in in the freezer in smaller amounts. And then, yeah, just throw it in and add some liquid, too. I, I actually just learned something from you. What? Not not the first time, oh, I would add. well, huh. I didn't know that the gel, if you reduce it essentially to a gelatin, it can hold for weeks in the fridge. Weeks the in the fridge. Really? Weeks in the fridge, yeah. There um, you go. And I think it's worthwhile. Just throw in a tiny teaspoon and some water, and it's so good and so much depth of flavor. It's just gold. Oh, I love that. We actually answered somebody's question. Well, thank you. Thank you, Chris. Excellent. I feel firmly about this one. So there we go, Judith. Oh, wonderful. Have fun with this. Yes. Thank you so much. And okay. this is called gloss, you said. G-L-A-C-E. Yeah, gloss. It's like gloss de viande. Yeah. yeah. Very good. Thank okay. you both. All righty. Thank you. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Steph. I'm calling from down on Cape Cod. It's beautiful there. It is. It sounds like you're having a particularly beautiful day. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a beautiful day to bake on Cape Cod. Sounds like that might be your question. Is it related to baking? It is. I have only ever used a hand mixer. And a few weeks ago, I was making a batch of whoopie pies, mm. and my hand mixer died. Oh, dear. So I got a stand mixer, and my first bake was more whoopie pies. But something went very wrong because the cake batter thickened up so much that it really turned into more of a cookie dough, which had never happened Mm. before. So my only thought was I must have overbeaten the batter. It's a very traditional whoopie pie that I've used a lot before. It's flour and cocoa, baking soda, salt, butter, Crisco, brown sugar, egg, and vanilla and then some milk. And you start by creaming the butter and Crisco with the sugar? Yes. You do the butter, the shortening, the brown sugar, beat that, and then you add the egg and the vanilla and beat it a little more. And then you have your flour mixture with your cocoa and soda. And then you add that and the milk in a couple of stages and just beat it to combine. You might have overbeaten it at an early stage in the creaming process is what I'm thinking to begin with. Was it that early, do you think, in the process? It could have even started there, yeah. Oh, dear. Okay. The thing about stand mixers, they are very strong. And you have to just figure out, because the temptation is to just take them up to a high speed. So do you think you started at a lower speed, or do you think you just... I did. I tried to do, I think, maybe three. I didn't even want to get up to half, because I thought, ooh, that's going to be too far. And I know that my butter was was room temperature. Were you using the paddle attachment or the whisk attachment? I... My first time using it. So I actually started with the whisk for about 20 seconds and I realized nothing was happening. So I moved over and used the paddle for the uh-huh. rest of it. That's it. The you whisk, you, yeah, if you're going to cream butter, you need to use a whisk. Yeah. Not the paddle attachment is for a batter, but for creaming oh. butter, you, so you should have stayed with the whisk. Once you add the oh. sugar to the butter and the yeah. Crisco, it, it should have been okay. But also back to if the butter's too soft, you see, then it sort of starts to That's melt. True. You know, there's no air is going to get incorporated. Yeah, so that's part of the problem, too. Okay. Use the whisk, and also don't let the butter get too warm. Yeah. Wow, it's great. Now, do you have any other tips I should keep in mind? Yes, I have two tips for you. One is, you know, sometimes with small amount of ingredients, as you pointed out, the whisk doesn't actually hit the bottom of the bowl. So mm-hmm. I slightly unscrew the bowl and hold it up <gasps> a little bit. Yeah. And, you can and, do that, yeah. yeah. And if your butter is too cold... Get a kitchen towel, put it under hot water, wring it out, and wrap it around the bottom half of the bowl. Ooh. uh, And that'll heat up the butter a little bit, and that'll make it cream faster. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to have fun with that stand mixer. Well, thank you very much. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. At the Thanksgiving table, if you wonder why marshmallows go with sweet potatoes, well, you might want to give us a ring. Our number is 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843 or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Jesse Gordon. How are you? Where are you calling from? I am calling from Jerusalem, Israel, and I'm fine. How can we help you? I occasionally read recipes 
and I've been confused about garlic. Some of them say you should use a garlic press or a microplane or a mandolin or sauteed or crushed with salt and paste. And I'm wondering, are these just things that recipe writers put in to entertain us, or is there some kind of difference? <laughs> that's a, I love the way you that, say that's that. That's a great question because I think over the years I've advocated nine different preparation methods. And you're right. It's just a matter of personal preference or what people are used to. The basic rule is the more you mash it, the stronger the flavor as you damage uh-huh. the cells. And so the less you mess with it, the milder the flavor. So my two favorite things to do are a smashed peeled clove. And you put that in the oil. And then before you serve, you take it out. So it just flavors the oil. Uh-huh. And so it just use whole cloves, essentially. The other is uh, slicing the cloves and then frying them in oil. And those slices are also good. Sarah, what do you do? I I don't uh, use a garlic press anymore. I rarely mince garlic because I don't want the really, really strong flavor. I actually still do mince it, but I start it in cold oil. Yeah, that's a good idea. And uh, gently heat it up because the heat also sort of calms down the garlic's bite. The strongest garlic is raw minced garlic. Yeah. So, you know, if you cook it, it tames it. And the finer it's minced, the more intense it will be. But I liked the garlic flavor, but I like to mellow it a bit by starting in cold oil, which means that you won't burn it and uh, bring it up. Well, that's interesting because, you know, I was learning to cook back in the 1820s or whenever it was. <laughs> I used to mince garlic and put it in hot oil. Yeah, we all did. And, you know, after 30 seconds... It burns. It would start to burn. So right. I think cold oil for onions, too. I use yes. it for onions oh, really? and garlic. Yeah. That makes sense. Start onions in cold oil and then very gently cook them. And therefore, you don't have to watch the pot and you don't get burning. Yossi, what do you do? Um, I think I'll do what you just advised me to do. <laughs> <laughs> the, the other thing is ro- roasted garlic is really wonderful, and it's very mellow and sort of buttery. Yeah. Isn't that a different flavor, though? It, it tastes different when you roast it. Yes. Of course. It's more mellow. It's sweeter. Garlic gets sweet just like onions right. do if they're cooked low and slow. The other thing about garlic that's sort of fun is at this restaurant I used to work at, we would take the uh, roasted garlic cloves and use them to thicken the sauce, yeah. throw it into a blender. So that stuff that you roasted in the oven, we'd squeeze into a blender with some of the sauce that we hadn't thickened, you know, so it'd just be like stock and flavorings and whatever that you cook the meat in. And then you'd throw it into the blender and puree it, and the garlic would thicken it. And you can also take a garlic, a whole head, remove sort of the loose papery outside, cut the top quarter off, and throw that into a super stew, cook it for an hour or two. And then when you're finished— With the skin— yeah, the papery stuff's off, but the skin's on. Oh. Take it out with um, tongs and then squeeze it back into the super stew. Yes. And so you get the inner meat of the garlic, which is very soft and mellow. And Sarah just mentioned using that for sauce, but you can also use it to flavor soup and stew. Right. It's a good trick. Right. That's terrific. Yeah, that's a really good trick. We use that a lot. Well, there great. You go. Well, thanks for calling. Thanks, Yossi. Thank you for your wonderful answers. Yeah, okay. pleasure. Bye-bye. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we chat with journalist Dave Stroop about the Academy Awards of Water and also the future of this precious resource. That's coming up in just a moment. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. 
my favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just <sighs> like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most Jay Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. When journalist Dave Stroop visited the Berkeley Springs International Water Tasting Competition... He ended up being a judge, and he tasted 78 different waters, including municipal, bottle purified, bottle non-carbonated, and bottled sparkling. The question soon became, how do you judge a beverage that is, in its ideal form, tasteless? Dave, welcome to Milk Street. Glad to be here, Chris. You know, when I was a kid, I remember the first bottles of water showing up in the supermarket, and I thought, that's a stupid idea. (laughs) (laughs) I've been wrong about many things. We're talking about an industry that might be almost $300 billion by 2020. So let's let's jump into this industry. You went to the Academy Awards of Water. Uh, what is it? Where is it held? And what happens? So it's an annual water tasting competition in Berkeley Springs, West Virginia. It's a cute kind of quaint little town, uh, probably about a little over an hour's drive from Washington, D.C., um, and then the, you know, there's the inn at Berkeley Springs, which is where the um, event is hosted. It's right next to the warm spring in the town, um, where also George Washington was rumored to have bathed when he visited Berkeley Springs. It's, uh, they call it the world's longest running and largest water tasting competition. Water bottlers, uh, municipal waters, all sorts of people send in their water to be judged by a panel of judges that do a uh, blind tasting. And then they award medals for the water. It's quite like a like a wine tasting, but 
for water. There's usually over 100 entrants every year, and it's been going since the 1980s. So you've been there twice, once as an observer, once as a judge. Why did you first go down there? Well, you know, I first heard about it from a friend of mine who mentioned there's this crazy thing that happens every year in West Virginia. And, you know, the idea just on its face sounded so absurd that I wanted to check it out and wanted to see what exactly that means. Is it as goofy as it sounds? So how many different waters does one judge have to taste in the course of this? Um, Over 70. I know in wine tastings, there are protocols and things you're supposed to do and not do. What are the rules of tasting water? I assume just like wine, there must be some some system. Yes, there is There is a system. The waters are all presented in identical stemmed glasses. They're served at room temperature, which I'm told enhances the taste. You're not supposed to eat or drink anything, you know, within 30 minutes of doing the tasting. You're not supposed to wear perfume or smoke cigarettes ahead of time. And you are allowed to reach for some water crackers sort of as a palate cleanser in between waters, which also has the added benefit, I was told, to kind of replenish the sodium in your mouth because when you're drinking so many different waters, your mouth can actually, interestingly enough, start to feel dry. In wine tastings, depending on what you're tasting, you're looking for a variety of specific things. Are you looking for an absence of flavor in water? Are you looking for a minerality? Or it depends on what, what category of water you're tasting. What, what are you trying to find? I, I would say it's extraordinarily difficult to judge waters on taste. And, you know, we were given some instructions ahead of time, but you are kind of looking for the absence of things. You're looking for the absence of any sort of off-putting taste, which is left kind of ill-defined, a, a sort of you'll know it when you taste it. So I think, yeah, the, the, the best of the waters, at least that would score the highest per the, the, the rubric we were given, would, would be the ones that have kind of an unremarkable flavor. So some of these I, I noticed, frequency H2O from Australia, there's a little bit of hype here. Described by its manufacturer as a synthesis of wisdom and evolution, alive with the pulsations of the universe, <laughs> excuse me, put through a two-stage kinetic energy process, uh, and infused with the frequency of love. I mean, you know, really? <laughs> there is a, a nonsense factor to some of this, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I read that same description, and I, you know, can't tell you what half of that means, and the other half, I'm sure, means nothing. You know, and, and, and this was a blind tasting, so, I, you know, I did taste that water uh, through the course of the day, I don't know if it was one of the ones that I scored high or not, but certainly I was not, you know, sipping on a water and, and, and as I swirled it in my mouth, could tell that it was vibrating at the frequency of love. <laughs> you know, as hard as I tried to determine that, I was unable. Yeah, I don't quite know what the frequency of love is, but anyway. Um, so let's step back. Why this interest? Is there a bigger picture here about drinking water? Because in many places, let's say in West Virginia, because of mines and other things, there is no drinking water. Is, is that part of the story here? Yeah. I mean, what stuck out to me was just this contrast between water is a luxury good, water is something that can cost, you know, $180 a bottle versus these towns not that far from Berkeley Springs. Wait, 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 wait. Stop. Did you just say $180 a bottle? Yes. Yes, for, you know, 750 <laughs> milliliters of water, $180. Really? And, and what brand is that? I, I believe that was either the, um, the glacier water uh-huh. um, from melting icebergs, or it could have been the, the water that was infused with love. Those were both, I think, two of the most expensive <laughs> bottles at Berkeley Springs. I am in the wrong business. So, so drinking water in that part of the world is a problem, right? Yeah, there, you know, there's all of these towns throughout, you know, West Virginia and other states that have had, um, especially the collapse of coal mining, um, you know, where, you know, a, a coal mine provided everything for a town. The, the mine then shuts down and all of the utilities that were operated by this mine company uh, begin to deteriorate and shut down. And there are dozens of these towns in West Virginia that still have people living there but have no water utility. And there's no one maintaining the water utility and then you have towns that have to drink bottled water because they have no municipal water. So the coal mine shuts down. A lot of the population leaves to find work. 
and there just aren't enough, there's not enough infrastructure and people there left to continue things like municipal water. Correct. To invest in the infrastructure to bring them right. into some sort of water system, especially because they're often in r- rather remote locations, the cost would be would, would be extraordinary. And, and the state, unfortunately, you know, isn't investing in that and, and, and probably won't. So what's the long-term outlook? The long-term outlook is that bottled water will be supplying an ever-increasing percentage of our drinking water over the next 100 years? Well, unfortunately, I think the outlook is is probably a bit more dire than that. Um, from, you know, the research that I've seen, there's concern that, that there will be a lot of people who simply will not have access to water. And that may mean, you know, cities having to relocate, things of that nature, especially with climate change. You know, there was a presenter at Berkeley Springs who once talked about how by 20, 2100 or something, there might be nations fighting wars over water. Now, I don't take a, a view that's maybe that dire, but it, it's hard to say that it could be sustainable for towns to exist on bottled water. No, but when you say one of the speakers said by 2100, countries might go to war over water, that's because there just is, is not enough groundwater to supply the population. Yeah, so we're talking about, especially with with the effects of climate change, areas that that would have you know rain, for example. You know, the climate has changed, the weather has changed, the existing groundwater is maybe harder and harder to find, or more expensive to find, or places that had had water coming in from somewhere else as the supply begins to dwindle. Um, it's harder to get water to those areas. So, so you're now a more educated consumer when it comes to, to water. Yeah, and, and I've learned, you look at it, giants like Nestle and, and the controversy that, you know, has arisen in some places where they're, they're pumping spring water to be bottled and then to be sold and then often to be given, in some cases, you know, as emergency relief to people who don't have tap water. And it really does make you think about, about where all this comes from and that it's not, it's not free. It's not, you know, it is a, a limited resource. Where, where do the big manufacturers like Coke and Pepsi, these, you know, the big distributors, where do they get their water? Do they get it from municipal supplies? Do they get it from an actual spring? Where do they get it from? It's usually a combination of both, but they do get a lot of water from municipal water. The labels will say where the source is. So I don't, I have, a, I got a problem with this. So a big distributor of water brand goes into, you know, Hartford, Connecticut or whatever yes. and says, okay, we're, we're going to suck up, you know, so much water and pay the water bill. Uh, that, that concept just seems so alien to me that you're not starting with a high quality source of water. You're starting with something that's been processed through a, a municipal water supply and putting it in a plastic bottle and charging a fair amount of money for it. Yes. It's it's a matter, <laughs> yes. you know, uh, in, in that case, it comes down, you know, pretty much to convenience. Uh, the world's a strange place. So so what about you say, oh, I live in Washington, D.C. I just drink water out of the tap. How, how do you know that water's OK? There are some reports that you can access. The EPA does put out some, you know, reports on on water systems and their quality. But in the vast majority uh, of places in America, Thankfully, you know, there, there is safe drinking water, but there are just, you know, far too many places, um, you know, you don't have to look too far in the headlines. You know, Flint still right. has issues with access to water. And in, even in Washington, D.C., for example, we've had problems in the past with lead in the water, often due to decaying infrastructure. Are you going back uh, next year to the water tasting? You know, I would like to go back. It's a very interesting event. I don't think I would ever want to drink 72 waters in three hours again, but um, it, it is it is something to see, especially at the end. Um, they have this thing called the water rush, where they build this elaborate display out of all the bottled water that wasn't used up in the tasting. You know, usually places right. will send a couple cases of water, and they create this kind of fancy display in the middle of the floor in the ballroom. And then at the end of the night, after the winners are read, they invite the audience to come and demolish the display and take with them however many bottles of water they can gather in their arms. And you'll see families with young children rushing towards this display, you know, loading up uh, canvas bags with with water and dragging them out to their uh, cars. Some people bring suitcases and fill them with bottled water. It's, uh, I wouldn't call it that fun. It it was more a little, um, kind of a little dark, actually, watching people not really fight each other, but compete for these bottles of water. 
Well, at least nothing got thrown out. I mean, if I were you, next year I'd step up to a hard cider tasting or yes. a coffee tasting or champagne tasting. I mean, there are other kinds of tastings, you know. Yes. When I walked away from that, I said, I don't ever want to drink another glass of water. <laughs> Dave, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having you on Milk Street. Thank you. It was wonderful to be here. That was writer Dave Stroop. His article published on Eater is entitled The Gulp War, Inside the World's Largest Water Tasting Competition. As a kid in Vermont, when I was hanging the field down by the Battenkill River, Charlie Bentley, he's the local farmer, would walk me over to a fresh spring that trickled down a small rock embankment, and we took turns drinking. The water was cold, pure, and had the faint taste of fern. When there wasn't a spring nearby, we brought a jug of cold water and mint, and stuck it in the nearby stream to keep it cool. We jump into the Green River on really hot days. The water was so cold, you couldn't even think. It was all you could do to fight the current, hanging on to moss-covered rocks. Water, we drank it, bathed in it, skated on it, and went fishing in it. It was free, pure, and ours for the taking. Now, you buy it in a bottle. As Charlie Bentley used to say, ain't that something. Right now, I'm heading into the kitchen of Milk Street to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, coconut rice pudding. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. I love rice pudding. I'm not afraid to say that on radio. Um, (laughs) There's baked, there's stovetop, milk, half and half, cream, water, different kinds of rice, different kinds of flavorings. I'm at the point where I'm looking for something a little more adult, not too much, (laughs) not too sweet. I don't want it to be overly mushy texture like a real pudding. And so we look to Southwest India to find a style that we actually really like. We did. So this is an area called Kerala. It's on the coast of India, a little bit tropical there. So there's a lot of coconuts there. And they use coconut milk in their rice pudding. This adds a really nice flavor, but it also is slightly less sweet than some of the other rice puddings you might find in India. Some use jaggery, which is an unrefined brown sugar, very, very sweet. Some use date molasses. And then there are some that use less sugar with like orange blossom, rose water flavors. We were trying to get something that was kind of in the middle there. But it's not just coconut milk. We use a lot of water too, right? So so it isn't overwhelmingly coconut. That's right. We use both. And you want to make sure that you're using full fat coconut milk here, not the light stuff you might find at the supermarket. That will make this whole mixture much too watery. So just a basmati rice, which is typical there? That's what you would use typically in India, but we found that we preferred in arborio rice here. Sometimes rice pudding can be a little bit mushy. We were trying to avoid that. The arborio rice is really dense, so it really holds up well when we put this in the oven. So it's a rice pudding with the emphasis on the rice. <laughs> exactly. So this goes in the oven, you know, bakes. Do you finish it with something or all the flavors go in at the beginning? Some of the flavor is going to go right into the pot. So we stir together the sugar, the salt, and we add some cardamom, and that's going to give some of those floral notes. Then we combine the coconut milk and the water in the Dutch oven, bring that to a boil, add in the rice, the sugar, and a little bit of orange zest, again, that floral flavor that we're going for. And then we bake it in the oven for about 50 minutes. And then it comes out, and how do we finish it? So it comes out of the oven. We finish it with a little bit of vanilla. We do that at the end because we don't want to lose that flavor during that 50 minutes of cooking time. You can serve this warm and sprinkle it with some pistachios and a little bit more of that ground cardamom. So although I'm not grown up, um, we now have a recipe (laughs) for for kind of grown up rice pudding with some interesting flavors, but not too sweet. Exactly. It's a kind of perfect grown up pudding. Lynn, thank you very much. You're welcome, Chris. You can find this recipe and all of our recipes at 177milkstreet.com. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up, Dan Pashman and I take a good hard look at food emojis. We'll be right back. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more.
That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, Sarah Malt and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Tracy from Phoenix. How can we help you? At our household, we use a lot of bone-in, skin-on chicken thighs. Good idea. And I trim them of excess skin and fat and put the trimmings in the freezer, hoping that someday I can figure out how to make schmaltz. And so my questions are, can I make schmaltz with these? And if so, how? What is the best way to store schmaltz? And what are some uses for schmaltz? I know you touched on this fairly recently in another call, but I thought I would develop the topic a little more. Do you want to say what schmaltz is first? Yeah, schmaltz is just fat. So in this case, chicken it's chicken fat. fat. The frozen skins and fat chop up into pieces, put it in a skillet or medium saucepan with a little bit of water because you don't want it to brown, and then cook it very low and slow for an hour or two until it's fully melted. And then you can freeze it in ice cube trays or however you want to do it and just use it as you would, let's say, olive oil or butter. And it's easy to do. The key is not to brown it or darken it. Well, that's interesting. I sort of beg to differ. Because if you want those yummy, crispy ribbonists, which are the skin, crispy cracklings, cracklings, chicken cracklings, you cook it really low and slow until the skin is crispy. So the skin will get golden brown. I would recommend doing that because you, you develop more flavor. Dark, well, no, not dark schmaltz. dark, but light golden brown is fine. Sometimes people add some sauté onions, you know, cook it in the schmaltz to add some extra flavor. When I did leaf lard, I used to do that all the time. I used almost one part water to two parts fat. That was my formula. I just cover it. I don't even measure because you eventually simmer off all the right. water. I would say that I believe schmaltz has a lower smoke point than most other fat. So that's one thing to keep in mind. You know, maybe searing a steak in it is not the best idea. But I would freeze it also the way you just suggested or keep it in the fridge, probably keep for a week or two. It's so easy to do, but you'd feel so good making your own schmaltz, right? And it's yummy. 
Yeah. Then you can use the chicken cracklings like in a salad, like croutons or something, or on top of a a soup or a stew, you know, like a crisp topping. You can't tell us right now, but Sarah's smiling. I'm getting hungry just thinking about it or tossing it with pasta, you know, like breadcrumbs. It would be so yummy. Well, wonderful, Sarah and Chris. Thank you so much for the call. Our pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Paul. Hey, Paul. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from uh, Sunnyvale, California. So how can we help you? So I have a strange issue. Um, I made a country apple galette. And just a simple ingredients, apples, lemon juice, a little bit of butter. And then after it was cooked, I glazed it with a low-sugar apricot jam. Um, after a couple of days of eating it, I put it in the refrigerator. I had it wrapped in tinfoil to keep it warm until we had our first serving. And I just left it in tinfoil. After three or four days in the refrigerator, I noticed that the thick aluminum foil had thousands of pinholes yeah. in it. But what I didn't realize was apricot jam being in direct contact with the aluminum foil would have this reaction. And I just don't understand it. It's not acidic. Now you mentioned it. I have had that exact thing happen. And this is with a tart I put on a cardboard round, not on a metal pan, with aluminum foil on the top. And it wasn't really acid. Well, I guess a fruit jam does have some acidity in it. Fruit jam has some acidity. Yeah, there's and some also, acidity. You said you tossed the apples with lemon juice. So there was. Yeah, no more than about a half of a lemon. Yeah, but even yeah. so. Yeah, that could be it. I do know that aluminum reacts with acid, and there must have been enough acid in I there. I think so. If you have a fruit pie and there is no custard or cream or anything in it, don't put it in the fridge, don't cover it. Leave it out. Mm, I'm with you. Because, you know, you're going to create a moist environment with it being covered in the fridge and the crust is going to get soggy. And I just would say next time, cover it with plastic. And if you need to cover it at all, if you're worried about the bugs getting to it, because you've got that apricot jam on there, which is sort of like a seal. And leave it out. Don't put it in the fridge. So there's or that. Or you might come back okay. and there are four really fat mice <laughs> sitting where you're tired. Well, it depends was. on, you know, if you're worried about vermin. <laughs> but I, I wouldn't not use aluminum foil. I just think make sure you don't use it near anything that's remotely acidic. No, but I've had this many, many times when covering desserts. And I've seen it. It gets discolored on the inside. It's really nasty. So I, I just use plastic wrap now. And, and I agree with you. I don't refrigerate a dessert unless it's got unless dairy. Unless custard or cream filling. And I also put it in a, on a cardboard round and get it out of metal, which mm-hmm. I think also helps. Because sometimes the metal flavor seems to get into the yeah. dessert. Yeah, I hear you. Do you have any thoughts as to why? No, I don't have any thoughts, actually. The apricot jam goes on top. So any lemon juice would have been buried by the apricot jam. And it was a healthy amount on there. So there's acid that in apricot, apricot jam. jam. Was the one that was in contact with the aluminum there, foil. There is acid, um, but maybe may there I is acid suggest in a wild jam. and crazy thing. Yeah, maybe sugar reacts with aluminum. Foil. Well, I know that salt does. Yeah, so it may be sugar. I do know it's happened many times. That's why I stopped using foil. Excellent. Well, very good. Thank you guys for doing <laughs> a great job on TV. Uh, Thank my you. Entire family watches both your shows. It's, it, it, they're really excellent. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Yeah, take care. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary inspiration from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Tan Summers. My daughter-in-law Joanne showed me how to cook eggplant so that it doesn't turn into mush. Cut the eggplant into one-inch rounds, brush with olive oil and sprinkle with a little salt, then roast in the oven at 400 degrees for about one half hour. The eggplant should get dark and caramelized, almost burned. It may brown faster on the bottom, depending on your pan. Once cooked, the eggplant can be cut into chunks and added to other ingredients you've cooked the normal way for dishes such as bangan bartha or caponata. Just stir in the eggplant and cook the dish another 5 to 10 minutes so the eggplant soaks up the flavor. If you'd like to share your own culinary hack or secret ingredient on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. One more time, 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's the unpredictable and uncensored Dan Pashman. Dan, how are you? 
I'm feeling pretty jovial today. You know, I, you and I don't text much, Chris. We're not big texting buddies, but I, I imagine that when you text, you're the kind of person who who uses a lot. Like you use the letter R instead of A R E, and the letter U instead of Y O U, and you use a lot of emojis and like very silly oh, yeah. terminology. Is is that about right? When I text, and and my wife points this out, I text one word: yes. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Right. Or got it. That's, that's two words. I, I'm not a big, uh, no. I'm not an expansive texter. I, when I text with my kids, occasionally I use an emoji, however. What are some of your favorite go-to emojis? Uh, you know, the birthday hat and cake. Um, one of my kids is really into animals for her career, so there's plenty of those. Or, and obviously, if I'm making something for dinner when talking to my kids, that comes into play they have plenty of fish and other things you know so right right have you ever used the pizza emoji never really well there's a bit of a pizza emoji controversy brewing on the internet that i would love to get your take on okay you you may not have noticed this since you don't use it but the pizza emoji has pepperoni on it it's a slice of pizza with pepperoni on it right what do you think of that (laughs) the controversy is not obvious to you uh, no, it's not. Well, first of all, do you know how emojis come to be, Chris? No, I don't, actually. They don't just appear. If you if you think that there should be an emoji in the world, you have to make an application to the Unicode Consortium. And you have to show them that it's in use, and you have to explain that it's you know going to be compatible and that there's a demand for it, that it will be used. And every year they add a certain number of emojis. And so there's a process. And once they add it, there's certain guidelines that all the different companies have to abide by in their depiction of this emoji. Hmm. And so it is a, a, a pretty regimented, pretty official process. And the issue is that when they say that the pizza emoji has to have pepperoni on it, it becomes the definitional representation of that food for the entire world. And some people are upset about the idea of pepperoni pizza possibly becoming the default pizza if it is the representation of pizza in emoji form. Can I I just point out that if one were to still read a newspaper, which most people don't do, the notion of whether pepperoni is the ideal form of pizza would not be on the front page or anywhere in the front section as, as being something worthy of real consideration. We do have a few other issues to, to deal with before we get to this one. Yeah, perhaps, but people are worked up about it, Chris. So one argument is that the pepperoni pizza is a problem because it's creating the wrong idea about pizza. But the contrary argument is that emojis are sometimes very small, and without the pepperoni dots on there, it's hard to tell that it's a slice of pizza when it's very small. It looks kind of oh. like a triangle of cheese. And so the pepperoni distinguishes it. Probably a real Neapolitan pizza. You know, little basil, you know, melted mozzarella, tomato sauce. That's probably fairly identifiable. I I agree. So is that the camp that you're on? Should I tell the folks in the Reddit message forums that Chris Kimball has taken a stand? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks a lot, pal. No, no. Is this about, okay, there, there are two issues. Is pepperoni pizza the ideal form of that particular food group? Or is pepperoni pizza not sufficiently inclusive because many people don't want to eat meat on their pizza? Or because just it's just not the original. Oh, that's fair, actually. I, I, I think I agree that pepperoni pizza should not be representative of pizza as a category. All right. I'll send a note to the message forums. They're going to be very happy, Chris. You may find a few of them outside your house when you wake up in the morning, but and, they'll and, be, they'll, they will be happy to see you. And may, may I point out, Mr. Pashman, you have not come down on one side or the other. And since you brought this up, I think it's incumbent on you to have an opinion. <sighs> you got me, Chris. That's fair. You know, I'm torn because I agree with you that uh, I'm, I'm troubled by the idea of pepperoni pizza becoming the default type of pizza. Because as much as I love pepperoni pizza, it should not be the default. But I'm also like very concerned with sort of communication and practicality and the idea of the emoji being difficult to decipher without the pepperoni concerns me because I, I feel like an emoji's job is to communicate something specific. And, you know, Chris, when an emoji is not clear, it becomes misinterpreted, you know, and we, and we don't need to talk at length about what happens when the peach and the eggplant emojis get together. But those emojis have been uh, mis or reinterpreted by modern culture. And that's fine. I'm not judging that. But if I was a peach or an eggplant enthusiast, I might be upset. And, you know, I don't know what how the pizza could be misinterpreted, but the pepperoni makes it pretty clear. 
Dan Pashman uh, on the pizza emoji. Should it contain pepperoni or not? Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Chris. That was Dan Pashman of the Sparkful. Dan Pashman brought up emojis, and so I wondered about their true meaning. Some, of course, have hidden meanings, such as the octopus, which means cuddly. Is it because of all those arms? The manicure emoji means that you are not bothered by what was said about you. The croissant, oddly enough, indicates that you are anti-Brexit. But the pepperoni pizza emoji is the real surprise. It means, I love you. I guess that nothing says love like a slice of pizza. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can find our recipes, watch the new season of our television show, or order our latest cookbook, The Milk Street Cookbook. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks so much for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Stephanie Cohn. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugarts. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Haley Fager and audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubab Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloth. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. <laughs>